as we've been going through this um, this series in, in Revelation and and looking at the different uh, different churches, one of the things that that I think we've been noticing that that Christ is tries to um, tries to give some good news. He tries to sandwich it even. Uh, does that old sandwich method? You say something good, kind of give your constructive criticism. Try to close out with a positive thought um, where possible. Christ does this. Um, now, to consider the last two churches that we've, we've looked at, we've looked at Pergamos and Thyatira, and, and we've talked about, and they had some similar issues, but we've talked about some pretty disgusting things, things that you're not supposed to say in church, right? And they were doing in church, by the way. Uh, we don't even like to say that. We don't even like to read the verses. We're like, can, can we just skip past those verses? Um, and they were doing those things. And yet, even in those, even on those passages, we find that he finds something good to say. Which brings us to Sardis. We're going to read our text in just a second in Revelation chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1. And as we do, I want you to pay attention to just a couple of things. First, he jumps straight to the negative. That should tell us where this church stands in relation to some of the, the churches that, are, that, that he can find something good to say about. And uh, towards the end, he's going to give a statement. Uh, that, that kind of stands out, and you'll, you'll kind of watch for it. You'll, you'll see what I'm saying as we go through it. But uh, there's this thing that happens when, when you can't, uh, when you're trying to say something, you ever, you ever in a situation where you're, now say something nice about this person, right? You, maybe you just, you know, if you're not, if you can't say something good, don't say something at all. And this was kind of raised. A, you go through this thing. Now you have to say something nice about this person. We did this with our kids. They hated that. Like, because they would insult each other, get going. I'm like, okay, now you have to come up with something good to say about them. Oh boy, we'd be there for half an hour. You got to think of something to say. Nice. Oh uh, well, and it, you know, it would be some really vague thing. When and when we, whenever we we can't think of something to say, we we have the, well, uh, she has a nice personality, right? Or something like that. You get that that statement like. Oh, uh, well, he's got a nice personality. He's like, oh, boy, he must be ugly as a dog. What are, what are you saying about it? It's just really general. And he has, Christ has one of those nice personality statements about this church. You watch for it. Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are uh, they're ready to die. I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. And therefore, if you are not going to watch, I will come upon you like a thief, and you will not know what hour I'm coming to you. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They'll walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
you have a few there, that's as good as it gets to Sardis. A few people. You've got a few people. I think it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of churches in this area. And he picks out seven to speak of and speak to. And I think that that does encourage us that, that at least a few people in a church was something God could work with. I don't think we have that situation. But that stands out. That's the best it gets. A few people. That's what I can say good about you. I want to get into a, just a couple of things here, uh, just to clear some, some things up. Uh, we notice most of these, we've talked about how most of these pictures, uh, there, was, there was a lengthy, in chapter one, there was a lengthy text talking, gives all these attributes of Christ, right? And we talked about the feet of brass and the, and the sword and all these different things and, and how each church got a little different piece of that overall picture. And here's the exception. Um, now, this, there's a statement in here that does come from chapter 1, but it doesn't come from that section. It comes from a different section from the introduction. And he says, he talks about the one who holds the seven spirits. We get into what in the world is the seven spirits. I'm going to put this right out there. I don't know. I'm going to give you two views. And you, I, I kind of lean one way, uh, but... I, 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 won't put, I won't close the door on being wrong here. Uh, so, so here we are. Um, we, we look at um, the seven spirits. What are these things here, uh, these seven spirits? And there's a couple of things, actually. There's, there's three ideas that could be. And uh, he t- the, the one we, we mentioned, the seven, there's this, we talked about the seven angels. Remember those, the, the, the seven evangelists or, or, or bishops or whatever they were, the, the, the seven preachers somehow of, of each of these congregations. And, uh, and we know that these, these, were, these churches were seven lampstands, and there's this play on seven. And um, if, we, if we look at chapter 1, verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace, and, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and then and from Christ the father, the faithful witness the the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth and he he goes on and, uh so so the seven these seven uh spirits are in front of the throne so so they're not the seven churches they're not these seven evangelists i think we can eliminate that that still leaves a couple of ideas um there is an argument that this is the Holy Spirit. Um, I will relay that to you. This is, I wouldn't agree with this, but I, again, I could be wrong. Uh, so there's two primary arguments for it. Uh, one is based on, uh, we're going to hold your place there, and Isaiah 11.2 is, is one of the arguments here. Isaiah 11.2. The one page I want won't turn. There we go. He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Or let's back up to verse one. He says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch will grow out of his roots. We know this is talking about Christ. So, so Christ is going to be con- connected to something. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And so someone said, 
the, the spirit, this is an allusion to the Holy Spirit through these seven identities or, or, or characteristics of, of, the, of the Holy Spirit. And there's a problem. The problem is I can count, and there's only six. So we're going to go back to Revelation. Right, so so that, that kind of falls apart there. Uh, the, the, other, um, uh, the other thing here is uh, you will get into, um, and as we get into Revelation, we're going to be starting Revelation class, we get into a problem that people love numbers. Uh, people love numerology. And you will hear this phrase again and again and again and again and again, that seven is the number of God, perfection, right? Uh, I dare you to find the Bible verse that says that, and then I will allow that to be entered as a fact. We love numbers, and, and three is the number of this, and four is the number of that, and 10 is the number of this, and 12 is the number of that, and, and 40 is the number of this, and we love numbers. And, and any time a number is used more than once, we, we think it has some divine significance, and there's no reference to it in the Bible. If a, if a Bible gives a number significance, then by all means, let's use it. But the Bible never refers to seven as a number of God or a number of perfection or, or three or whatever. It doesn't do that. Uh, so I, I lived in Ukraine for, for, for a while, and, and they're very devoted to some of these numbers. Uh, and so they, they're very proud of the fact that when they go into their Orthodox church, they're not like the Catholic church. Um, they, uh, when they cross themselves, right, they use three fingers. I don't know if that's Catholic or not. Does, is that, I don't know if you, I, I just said, you're raised in Italy, so I don't know if you know some of these things. But, but the Orthodox Church being separate from the Catholic Church, from, you know, a thousand years ago, they love the, they're very proud of the fact that they're not Catholic. And, and they're better because they, they use three fingers for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit when they cross themselves. They're very into the numbers. There is another mention of seven, I think, might be more accurate. And we're going to see this as we do go through the class, that there are seven spirits. They're angels. John has a conversation with some of them in this book of Revelation. There were seven angels. We see them several times. They're, they're different from these four creatures that stand before the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. And these angels pour out seven bowls. They blow seven trumpets. These are the seven spirits, I think. Again, I could be wrong. We get into some stuff that is above my pay grade. It was above John's too. <laughs> so. And it usually comes before a dire warning, seven bowls of wrath, right? Seven judgments, these trumpets that would open up some things that were going to not be pleasant to whoever was receiving this message and to whomever it replied. So, so when he says the seven spirits, if this is a reference to those angels, then he's saying, I got some bad news. If you don't fix some things, Hebrews calls his angels ministers of fire. When God sends his angels, we, we, we have all the beautiful pictures of angels. 
And, and sometimes they don't come with messages of beauty and wonderful singing and dancing. And I mean, the, the picture of, of, of the, the choir of angels, the night of, of Christ's birth, that's nice. But, but sometimes the, the picture of an angel going through the camp of Israel, not a nice picture. Going through Egypt, not a nice picture. So when he says, I know your works, and that is not followed by a compliment, he's signifying, I know your works. We've got some things to talk about because I know your works. I want to talk about perfection. I have not found your works perfect before God. We need to talk about what perfection means, what it doesn't mean. There's different ideas of perfection. There's first the quantity. We think of the quantity of something. It's not perfect. It's not complete. That's really what is at the root of perfection. The word meant complete. And there is limited practice in here, I think. Your works are not complete. Right? We, we just read a church where, where he says, I know your works and all these things, and it's getting better. Even they weren't complete. So, so to start off and say, I know your works, they're not complete. They're not perfect. Boy, this must be a church lacking some significant amount of works, whatever those works were. Again, we don't know what the, there's just not a lot of it gets into this idea, you have a name that you're alive and dead. It's whatever they are. It's not, it's not even, he can't even say it's getting better. So that's the, the, a part of it. They're limited in practice, but they're also limited in participation. You have a few. You have a few people there that are doing it the right way. So, so, so it's not, it doesn't apply to every person in the church. And, and any of these churches, the, the things that, they've, that he's mentioned doesn't obviously apply to every person in the church. But the minority of people were holding some standard. You know, God says, that, that's good enough for me to work with. I can do something with that. So that's the, the quantity of perfection. There is also a quality of perfection. So often when we think of perfection, what do we, we think of? We think of not sinning, right? Isn't that how we, we think of perfection? I didn't sin. Well, that's good. That's a small part of perfection. People get caught up into the argument of whether something is acceptable or not acceptable based on whether they will go to hell or not if they do it. That is such a small part of perfection. And so they get into these theoretical arguments about whether man can be perfect or not. 
Can a man be perfect or not? And the idea always is, can you go from one day to the next day without sinning? And this, this debate has been had for forever. Well, we've all sinned, so the point is moot. Because once I've been imperfect, I can no longer be perfect from that point on. So why are we having the discussion? <laughs> We're wasting time. I'm not perfect, so no matter how good I can be from, from this point on, I can't ever be perfect. I did a, a lesson, uh, I've done this a couple of times with, with kids, and, and uh, I, I took a big bowl of water. Just had a huge pitcher, like a punch bowl, and and I just put something like like I don't know it was, it was like really super dark ink, and I just put it in there and it turned the whole thing black. It's amazing how black it is, and and then I took I had a whole bunch of pitchers of water, and I just poured it in till it was full, dumped some out, and kept on pouring clean pitchers and clean pitchers. I'd, I'd ask him every time, would you drink this now? No, do this another way. Would you drink it now? And we went through like 10 or 15 buckets or pitchers of water and never wanted to drink it because it's still black. They can still see the black in it. It doesn't make a difference how many times I, I, I'm good from that point of, of sinning. The discussion is moot. That's not even where perfection is. Where the real perfection is, is that God is intent on my completion. The things we do are the focus, not, the, and not to the neglect of the things that we don't do. Not, not to say, well, God really is, we, we have a lot of things. Uh, false choices where, where we say, well, God is really interested in this. So, so obviously God is not interested in that. God is primarily interested in the positive things that I do. That doesn't mean I get to neglect. We just sung a song, uh, Yield Not to Temptation. And you go, there's a verse, I don't think I've ever sung that, that particular verse in it before. I, I don't remember it anywhere uh, growing up. Uh, but it talks about not taking the, the, the name of the Lord in vain and all those things. The, the things that we should try to focus on not doing. And that, but, but there's the other side of us that's talking about kindness, the positive things. And that's really the picture is, yes, there's things that we're supposed to avoid as Christians. But the real focus of things is where I am accomplishing something for Christ. Perfection. He says, I haven't found you to be perfect. I don't know what he was expecting. I don't know what specific things it was. Maybe it's kept vague specifically so that other churches don't read and say, hey, we're doing that, we're good. That each church has to examine them all, their own selves and say, are we perfect? Are we moving in the right direction here? Whether I'm sinning or not, that's a good question for beginning faith. That's a, a good way to get my mind started in Christianity, but that's, that's not perfection. 
That's where we start out. I think God says we need to grow beyond that. Will this choice help or hurt somebody? It might not be wrong to do. It might not send me to hell. This association, this practice, will this benefit people? Will this move me closer to God? Or will I just kind of be neutral? See, these kind of questions are where perfection is. What attitude does this behavior show? What interests? What priorities? Those are different questions than, well, I can sneak into heaven, just barely get in if I do this. They're different questions. The second thing I, f- I find in this is the, the topic of perception, slightly different. He says you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Now, English is, in some ways, a more specific language than Greek, specifically in their nouns. Nouns in Greek had a lot of different uh, definitions for things. We, we're very specific in English, right? Um, and and, and you know, we have a lot of synonyms that are kind of almost synonyms, but this one we use in this way, and this one we use in this way. And that's not always the case in Greek. In Greek, just, their words kind of meant a lot of things. So, so when we say a name, to us, when we see this word name, you have a name. We have a, 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 a fairly narrow idea of what the word name means, right? Name is my name, name of a company. It's what it's called. That's what the word name means. But the word name, to them, had a lot of meanings. Um, And so this has caused a lot of practices or has influenced a lot of practices within Christianity Um, that, that might not be necessarily accurate, not necessarily wrong, but not accurate. For example, and we'll get to what the concept of a name is. When we baptize, what do we say? In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Because of Matthew 28, because we see the word name, Matthew 28, and and, and we say that's what that means, name. That's not really the concept that's intended. Because if that's what God wanted, if that's really where his focus was, we would have to know what the name of the Father is. Right? I would have to baptize in the name of the Father. Well, what is the name of the Father? I don't know. Worse yet, what's the name of the Holy Spirit? I don't know that. If I was going to baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit, I'd have to know what the name of the Holy Spirit is. Fred? I don't know. The name, the idea of a name is deeper than that. If we go back to the concept of names, 
names now we just come up I like this word I like this this says is pleasant sounding and then we name our kid that but names originally had to do with what you did for a living you were a smith you were a carpenter or you were a cook right and or, or it could be where you were from names had to do with where you were from or all sorts of things like that. They might have been concepts that, that your family liked, so, so they might have named you Grace. It was a, a pleasant concept. It was something they wanted you to represent. But you get nicknames, right? You get nicknames. Why a nickname? Because of something that people associate with you. It's all about perception and association. That's where the idea of a name comes from. So when we go back to baptism for just a second, the way baptism used to work before Jesus, it was a practice before Jesus, it was about an association. So rabbinical schools would baptize in their name. You were you were getting a connection to somebody. Right? So we read in the scriptures that they were going out to John to be baptized by him. And later Apollos comes and he's only familiar with the baptism of John. Right? That's what he was familiar with. And so you would join a rabbinical school, it might be Gamaliel's or it might be John the Baptist. So you might want to be his student. And so you would associate, you're going to associate with the, the philosophy or the ideology that he's going to teach. And you would be baptized into that. I am taking this association. I'm taking this connection. So, so the idea of being baptized in the name of something doesn't necessarily mean that we have to, I'm not saying we shouldn't or, or it's wrong to do. I'm just saying the idea of, of what he was saying wasn't that make sure you say these few words, these three words, when you're baptized. That's not the idea. The idea was you are being connected to me in this practice. You're associating with me. You're associating with Christ. You're associating with the Father. And you're associating with the Holy Spirit. There is an association and a perception that when, when people see you, I want you to be connected to me in what they see. It's a much heavier idea than simply saying a formula. This is the idea of a name. So when he says, you have a name that you are alive. He's not saying that, that they had a name like on their, on their property, you had, had a sign out there because they didn't have a sign for another 200 years because they didn't have property for another 200 years. You have a reputation of being alive, in other words. People have in the past associated you with something positive, but you're kind of living on your reputation at this point. That's what he's telling them. You have a name, you have a reputation, an association with something positive, but you're not living up to it any longer. But you're dead. That's pretty harsh. We can 
rest on where we've been. Right? We can rest on accomplishments and kind of coast. The Chrysler did this for a while. Depending on when you've been a, a, a car and owner, when you grew up, Chrysler was a good company or it was a bad company. You can tend to trace that by when Lee Iacocca was the, the CEO. Right? It was kind of a positive company. Then they, they canned them and they kind of coasted and the products got really bad. And then they had to call them back in. Things got squared away. I don't know where it's at now. You can coast on a reputation. And so this church was coasting on a reputation. They must have been something notable at one point in time. And we have one more clue as to what God is upset about. A lot of times you can, you can see what God is really interested in by the type of encouragement that he gives in, in these churches. What he wants them to be. There was a, a guy I knew. He was a preacher out in Montana. His name was Jay. and um, He had a son named John Mark. And he was telling us a story about uh, John Mark. And um, he said, John Mark, his son, is his youngest son, was the slowest kid on the planet. Everything John Mark did took like an hour and a half to do. Just the slow. He's like, it's a good kid. There's nothing wrong with them. Just he took forever to do anything. So he said, they did everything. They, they tried to punch. They, we, we don't know what to do. And I don't know if it was his idea or someone suggested it to him, but they started calling him Speedy. It was a lie. And uh, they had, he said, one day they had company over and, uh, and, and said, hey, Speedy, can you go get me whatever, you know. And so Speedy went off to, to get it. And, and Speedy came back and he goes up to, to, the, to the guests and he says, you know why my dad calls me Speedy? It's because I get everything done fast. He's like, it was a lie. <laughs> but he's like, you know what? He's an he's a, he's a 18-year-old kid or whatever he was at the time, 19-year-old when I, when I met him. He's like, he's a kid that gets things done fast. I, I changed his perception of himself by, by the encouragement, I, what I wanted him to be. And I had to lie to him. He wasn't Speedy. Look through the scriptures and see how many times God lies about his people. I mean, not really lie, but, but trying to motivate. He says, you are a holy nation. No, we're not. You're a royal priesthood. No, we're not. What's God doing? God's trying to get us the idea of being speedy, right? That's what God wants us to be. So he tries to instill this idea. And that's in here. That's in this. He says, to him who overcomes, he'll be clothed in white garments. He wants them to have an idea of themselves as pure. Remember in this passage, Christ is clothed in white. He wants us to, to have this picture of being like Christ, pure like Christ. Well, I'm not ever going to be. On my own merits, I am never 
going to accomplish that. We already talked about that. I can't. I, I no longer can do that. But this church is sending mixed messages. They have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. They, they, they don't have the purity. I don't know what impurity they have, but they have something that God says is impure. Because he says, you have some people who haven't defiled their garments. You have a few people there that have white garments. That's it. I find this interesting. Until now, churches have been primarily identified and referred to their behaviors or whatever in a collective in other words, they have these congregational things that are wrong. We have a congregation that is tolerating this. This is going on in the church. But we come to a church that is not referenced that way. We don't know what the thing is. There's not a collective problem. Sometimes... The problem is that the collective is the sum of its parts. That we might all not be doing the same thing. But for us to present a picture, a unified picture, this person over here is doing this thing, and this person's over here doing this thing, and, and none of it's really where God wants us to be. Not perfectly. And here, he has a different flavor of what's happening here. It's individual. The importance, as we conclude, I want to talk about the importance of our individual perfection. It's not something that I can make other people perfect. In the end, I can govern myself and my own choices and my own priorities. And I can want things for other people. And I can encourage things in other people. Or vice versa. You can want things for me. And you can encourage me. But in the end, I make my own choice. From one day to the next. From one choice to the next. During the bombing of England, which usually happened at night, it was important for every light to be extinguished. Every light. It's kind of the opposite picture. Because the significance of one light was profound. It identified where a city could be. In the opposite way, it, the, the, the importance of individual light. And God says, listen, there's a few here that have not extinguished that light. That's something I can work with. Imagine if we're all shining. If, if everybody is, is working on the parts of their lives that are not perfect. 
I'm never going to get there. That's the encouragement. God says, I've got it under control. I've got the perfection under control. But you have to move in the right direction, right? And so Sardis' public reputation was in jeopardy because of individuals throughout the congregation, because of private behavior, in other words. Not necessarily something happening during church service or in large groups or large assemblies or whatever it was. And so the challenge as we close is to be armed with correct definitions of things. We talked about that before. Correct definitions are very important. To know what perfection is, to, to know how perception occurs. That, that it's important that I don't think that, well, we have a perception of a church because most of us are doing something. It, it depends on the strength of each part. That's what Ephesians says. That the whole building joined and knit together grows up as it's strengthened by each part doing its own part. Each part is valuable in the perception of the church as a whole. But to know what perfection is, to go forward and to try not to ask yourself this. Try not to ask yourself if something will send you to hell. Try to remove that definition. We're past that. Try to ask how it improves your life. How this improves a Christian brother or sister's life. How this represents Christ. When we ask these questions, it will change our behavior and we will move towards perfection.